The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love that lasts. Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, pastor is an acrostic which stands for preaching all salvation through one Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In part one of this episode, we began asking and answering several questions in an effort to help identify what is the correct biblical definition of being a Christian. The questions posed are as follows. 1. If Christianity is authentic, then why are there so many denominations and or variations? 2. If Christianity is true, then why have there been so many Christians who have done such terrible things? 3. If Christianity is true, why are there Christians who still continue to commit sin? And 4. What is a true Christian? In this episode, part 2, we will continue to endeavor to specify and resolve any stereotypical misconceptions about the nature and character of what it means biblically to be a Christian. We begin where we left off in part 1 with question number 2. Question 2. The second question is, if Christianity is true, 
then why have there been so many Christians who have done such terrible things? Now this question so often raised is in fact an allegation rather than being an honest question. The skeptic, humanist, and the atheist who typically are the ones to lodge the allegation love to point to a person, persons, or group who have or do exist in history and who for one of the previous reasons have labeled themselves as Christian. Those lodging the complaint then point to the behavior or lack thereof of those calling themselves Christians and say, Aha! Look! The behavior or lack thereof of this person or of this group is obviously not a behavior consistent with what Christians proclaim as being Christian. Therefore, this person is lying. Further, those lodging this complaint then use the supposed fact that since this person or group lied and was hypocritical, that the only logical conclusion is that all those who call themselves Christians lie, and that Christianity itself is a lie. So, how do we answer this question and or allegation? Again, the analogy is akin to that of our earlier exercise to find the authentic $100 bill among the numerous counterfeit $100 bills. In this case, our skeptic starts with the bias that there is no such thing as authentic Christianity, i.e. the authentic $100 bill. In order to prove their case, the skeptic strategically chooses what they and everyone else will agree to be a counterfeit bill. The skeptic points to the fact that the bill presents itself to be authentic in one or more respects, but then points out the inconsistencies and rightly concludes that the bill is counterfeit. The skeptic then proceeds to try to convince everyone not only are there no authentic $100 bills on the table, but there is no such thing as an authentic $100 bill in existence. Because if there were, we would not see those bills which are counterfeit. Additionally, those who attempt to use this argument demonstrate a certain level of their own hypocrisy. The reason being that if they were to apply their argument to any endeavor of man, we would ultimately be able to find those within that endeavor who have committed one, or more acts or omissions which could be used to disqualify them from having credibility, believability, or integrity. Again, as an example, almost no one would dare suggest that there is no such thing as science because someone who has labeled themselves as a scientist was convicted of perjury. No one suggests that all of archaeology be thrown out because someone who has labeled themselves as an archaeologist was convicted of murder. Take whatever example you please, no matter how many people have labeled themselves as being associated to a discipline or pursuit, are convicted of doing some terrible or horrible thing, we never find secular skeptics suggesting that those disciplines be dismissed as being illegitimate or untrustworthy. The only area where we find the carcass of this red herring being dragged is through the area of the discussion of Christianity and or faith in general. The truth is that the basic premise of the question is flawed because we must realize that adopting or applying the label Christian to oneself or to another person 
or group does not by itself guarantee that that person or group is in fact what is defined by the Bible as being Christian. In other words, it is not the label nor the application of the label Christian which defines the authenticity of Christianity. Rather, according to the Bible, ultimately it is only God who knows who is or who is not presently Christian. The only way that man can hope to weigh the merits of any person or person being Christian would be by using the gift of discernment in viewing the fruit i.e. the outward behaviors, or lack thereof of the person or persons in question, while measuring all that is viewed with humility and patience against the benchmark of Scripture in its total context. Given this fact, we see that there is an inseparable divide between that of secular man and the believer. We see that it is impossible for secular man to truly know what or who is or is not Christian, since according to Scripture, they do not have the tools necessary to do so. In summary, the question is fatally flawed with assumptions and terms requiring definitions, including what is the definition of Christianity? Who is defining what is or is not true? Who is defining what is or is not a terrible thing? Depending on who is doing the defining and what definitions are used, we could answer the question in any number of ways so as to qualify or disqualify anyone or anything as we please. In order to correctly answer the question, we would need to establish an ultimate authority with which to do so. Question 3. The third question is, if Christianity is true, why are there Christians who still continue to commit sin? In order to answer this question, we need to address two important issues. One, in what context do we mean, quote-unquote, sin? Two, in what sense are we using the word, quote-unquote, Christian? Let's take the issue of being Christian first. So far in this study, despite the fact that there are some who would have us believe that everyone who uses the label Christian is Christian, we have in fact established that there are many who consciously or unconsciously label themselves as Christian when in fact they are not. As a result, we must rightly recognize that there are basically two groups. Those who are in fact Christian as the Bible defines the term and who are recognized by God accordingly, and those who are not, including cultural Christians, carnal Christians, and non-Christians, even though they or others believe and espouse that they are. With this in mind, it would come as no surprise that those who are not in fact Christians would sin given the fact that they have not been delivered from separation from God via a relationship by grace through faith in Jesus. The situation is compounded given the fact that this group would consequently not have the gift of God's indwelling spirit, a new nature, or the transforming power which delivers them from sin, separation, and death. Consequently, we would expect that this group would, in fact, sin, despite the use of labels which would suggest to the contrary. 
This brings us to the second group, who are in fact Christians, as the Bible would define the term, and who are ultimately recognized by God as such. The question arises in this case, can or does someone who is a sincere, authentic Christian, as is described by the Bible, sin? To this question, we must in turn ask a follow-up question, which is in fact our first question. In what context do we mean sin? While we could conceivably spend an entire episode discussing sin and the various implications and symptoms upon man and his relationship to God, for the moment, we will keep the matter to the point. Insofar as the question of a Christian sinning is concerned, I would submit that there are two issues which play a part in the understanding and reality of sin in the life of a Christian. The first issue is one of perspective. In other words, are we talking about man's perspective or God's? The second issue is whether we are talking about sin being examined and judged from a judicial or conditional standpoint. From a scriptural standpoint, Man's predicament of sin is evaluated by God from the vantage point of the cross. From a secular, worldly standpoint, man judges sin according to the whims and dictates of his own heart, which, as we know, is desperately wicked. As a result, from a biblical standpoint, the only perspective which has any authority regarding sin is God's viewpoint. So what is the difference between the judicial and the conditional aspects of sin. The judicial aspects of sin primarily deal with the outward behaviors, acts, or omissions of God's laws, ordinances, and His righteousness which He has revealed to man. The conditional aspects of sin deal primarily with the inward attitude of our hearts, minds, and spirits which motivate or restrain the acts or omissions of sin. Once we start carefully examining the above dynamics of sin, we realize that there is a fundamental misunderstanding in play with regard to the understanding and use of the word sin, which has in fact created the confusion causing the question. To help resolve the confusion, we need to do a quick review. As you will recall, when Adam and Eve were first created, they were without sin. They were made with God's covering and were perfect according to His image. It wasn't until chapter 3 of Genesis that we hear of sin. You may also remember that in an earlier episode entitled, The Tree of Knowledge, we posed the question asking, What was the initial event which initiated sin? We further asked whether the inception of sin was Adam and Eve touching their lips to the forbidden fruit, or was that an instant when Adam and Eve took their faith off of God's covering and placed that faith in their own knowledge and on their own merits? What we concluded from that incident is for the purpose of this discussion, when Adam and Eve took their faith off of God, the instant they did so constituted their conditional fall into sin, since at that moment they were no longer fully trusting in God. 
The moment Adam and Eve's lips touched the fruit of the forbidden tree, they had now committed a judicial act of sin. From this point forward, from a conditional standpoint, each and every human being in history is born conditionally flawed by sin, as Romans chapter 3, verse 10 through 12 points out. Quote, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way, they are all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one." Unquote. We also see that Scripture reveals that once mankind made the choice to remove himself from God's covering of perfection, that there would be no way to replace that covering until God himself replaced what man had forsaken. This opportunity and gift was not available until the fullness of time when man could again, by God's grace, place his unconditional faith in the covering provided by Jesus. In the interim, our condition of sin, like Newton's first law of motion, remains in motion and is a truism, regardless of any titles or labels which we might apply to ourselves, until death acts on that motion. This fact is highlighted by Romans chapter 7, verse 5, which says, quote, For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death, unquote. Consequently, we see that absent the outside force of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, along with the gift of his indwelling Holy Spirit, along with his nature and power which acts upon our condition of sin and motion, our condition of sin remains in motion, and that condition will only tend to deteriorate to the point of death, eternal separation, and suffering. It is only by the action of Jesus and his life, crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection that those who commit themselves to him by his grace through faith and his righteousness have their condition or motion of sin acted upon by an outside force, i.e. Jesus Christ, who by his grace through faith in him justifies the believer into harmony and peace with God. In basic practical terms, regardless of labels or titles given, unless an individual has an abiding relationship with Jesus, held by grace through faith in his righteousness, that person is separated from God by virtue of the rebellion and unrighteousness. It is only when an individual repents of their rebellion and sincerely confesses and accepts Jesus and his gift of imputed righteousness that that individual is justified. It is at this point that the confusion arises. The confusion is between justification and sanctification. To understand what these two terms mean and how they affect sin, Let's use the following example. Assume we have an individual who has been a habitual thief all their life, i.e. a kleptomaniac. Further, let's assume that this person at some point realizes that they are doing what is wrong. 
They have tried to stop many times, but at some point they always fail because they still have the desire to take things that don't belong to them. Eventually, our person reaches the point where they are feeling so guilty about their behavior that they turn themselves into the police for their repeated violations of the law. The thief is arrested and taken to court before a judge. The judge asks, how do you plead? The person arrested pleads guilty of all charges. The judge accepts the guilty plea and then imposes punishment for the crimes that the person committed. Once the person is convicted and serves their sentence, that person can never be arrested, charged, or convicted again for those same charges. While this illustration is helpful, when we are talking about soteriology, which is a fancy word for salvation, there are some differences which have bearing on the answer to our question of why is there sin in the life of a Christian. In order to draw a correct analogy between that of the thief and that of Christianity, we need to redo the illustration in theological terms according to a complete biblical context. Using a biblical analogy, our illustration of the thief would be almost identical up to the point where the thief pleads guilty. As we proceed forward, we find the following observations. 1. Regardless of what sin we are talking about, i.e. theft or anything else, there is a distinction between an act or acts committed or omitted and the nature and character which causes those act, acts, or omissions. 2. The likely punishment for crimes that people commit varies depending on many factors when man is the judge. The uniform punishment for sin according to God is death and separation. 3. When the thief in our illustration is convicted, they are imprisoned or punished accordingly and they are not set free until they pay their debt to society. When a sinner sincerely confesses their guilt, believes in, and accepts Jesus as their Savior, it is Jesus himself who steps forward from the judicial bench and volunteers to vicariously accept our punishment, and by his suffering and death, pays our debt in complete on our behalf while we are set free immediately. 4. When the thief in our illustration has completed and fulfilled their punishment, they are no longer subject to prosecution for those crimes. However, they are still liable for any crimes they may commit in the future. In the case of the sinner, when Jesus pays the debt for the sinner, that sinner, now a believer, has every sin, past, present, and future forgiven and paid in full via their now and abiding relationship by grace through faith in Jesus. This total and complete pardon of all sin, past, present, and future, is what is known as justification. 5. The remaining similarity between the illustration of our thief and the analogy of the Christian is that although both are now set free of any penalties and are justified in the eyes of the court, both still have an underlying nature still in existence which is prone to commit acts of sin. 6. In the case of our illustration, whether we are talking about the thief 
or the Christian, man himself can hope to deter or prevent future acts of sin through one or more incentives or penalties, but there is no way to change the basic nature. However, in the case of the believer, those who are drawn to Jesus as their Savior are not only justified, but they are given the gift of His indwelling Holy Spirit, which provides moment-to-moment, day-to-day, transforming power to victoriously overcome our old nature prone to sin with a new nature which progressively conforms us into the image of God who gives it. Finally, seven. The difference is that while both still have an underlying nature prone to commit acts of sin, the believer who has an abiding relationship with Jesus by grace through faith now has a new nature implanted within which wars against the old nature. This new nature blossoms, grows, yields fruit, and is ultimately victorious to the extent that we yield ourselves in continuing grace through faith in obedience and submission to God's will in our lives. This new nature and the continuing process which leads to our ultimate confirmation into the image and likeness of Jesus is called sanctification. Using these filters... When we again ask the third question, if Christianity is true, why are there Christians who still continue to commit sin? We now know that all men, including those who label themselves as being Christian, and those who are in fact Christian, commit acts which can be labeled as sin. From the unregenerate perspective, the fact that those who call themselves Christian or who are Christian commit sin means that those same people are hypocritical and that Christians lie and ultimately that Christianity itself is false. The truth is, however, that all, including real Christians, have, do, and will commit acts which represent sin. Outwardly, from man's standpoint, these acts, events, and incidents we call sin all look alike. From the human perspective, there is no way to definitively distinguish at what point any given person is qualified or disqualified from being a quote-unquote true Christian by virtue of sinful acts. But from God's perspective, it is not any act acts or omission of acts which constitutes sin and separation. Instead, the issue is the heart and spirit which are in rebellion which constitute ultimate sin and separation. The good news is that by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, there is a way which is a gift whereby that sin and separation is forever healed. In terms of man knowing when any act acts or omission cross the threshold to become rebellion, the only blanket answer from Scripture is that the more any believer is submitted to and invested in God's grace, will, and obedience, the less that person will by proportion be invested in sin and the things of this world. The final analysis is left only to God and His knowledge of our hearts and condition. What we do know is, thanks to God, there is no act or acts of sin which can prevent us from having a relationship with and a submission to God when we understand that God is the author and finisher of our faith. 
but there is nowhere in Scripture that indicates that all ability to commit an act or acts of sin ends completely when one becomes a Christian. The concept that anyone can or does live without sin and that that supposed situation demonstrates that we are Christian is a notion sprung from the lie spread by Satan to Adam and Eve in the garden. It is this notion which has rise to many of the counterfeit aspects of Christianity which we see today, including the doctrine of sinless perfection and other works-based heresies. This concludes part two of this episode. Please join us again for the conclusion, part three. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R-Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. The world falls